Welcome to Supply Chain Briefs, the podcast that discusses the challenges, innovations, and critical issues of today's global supply chains. I'm your host, Joseph Moretta, and thank you for joining us. On today's episode, we have, esteemed, we have an esteemed panel of professionals to discuss the importance of technology in global supply chains. Joining us here tonight, we have Mark Lilly, President and CEO of Lillyworks, Tom Cook, President and CEO of Blue Tiger International, and Everton Moore, Director of Logistics at Radiance Living. Before we begin, just a few programming notes. Tonight's episode will be recorded. So if you'd like to record this episode, uh, download this episode later on and, and access it, you can certainly do that uh, via Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, and or YouTube or wherever else you get your podcast from. So with that, I just want to jump into things and I'll start get uh, this discussion. Um, starting, uh, starting with, I, I would like to uh, bring Tom on you know, as we said, we had an esteemed panel to hear to discuss the role of technology and how it helps and, and benefits and aids supply chains on a global scale. So, Tom, I'm hoping you can help uh, lay a foundation for everyone in the current state that we're in right now with supply chains. Given the, fa- the past few years, why is technology so important? For supply chains and companies around the world. Okay, so well, first of all, thank you, Joseph, for moderating this, and thank ASCM for putting it together. Um, just very briefly, is that our company is a consulting company in global supply chain. We go back over thirty years, and we help lots of different companies and service providers uh, work in the areas of risk and spend in their supply chain. So, specifically to the question that you asked, Joe, is that. Um, the the big factors that came out of this pandemic relative to the supply chain are three things. One is all the delays that were involved, all the price increases that was involved, and all the uncertainty that was involved, particularly in the demand planning arena. Um, so when you take the subject of technology, technology became a solution during the pandemic, which helped mitigate, mitigate the impact of any one of those areas. And as we're coming out of the pandemic, most supply chain executives are fully aware of this first quarter has seen a dramatic uh, decrease in the amount of delays and seen dramatic decreases in the uh, escalation of costs and so forth. Um, part of that is the role of technology having a major factor um, you know, in doing that. I'd like to give an example of that, which is what we refer to as PO management technology, which is the ability for a company here in the United States that's buying a product overseas is able to create an electronic transmission of a purchase order okay and everybody in the supply chain would get copies of that and therefore no hard documents are required the the actual supplier overseas creates a commercial invoice a packing list their forwarder creates bills of lading and other documentation all done in an electronic format transferred to government agencies for their approval and their admissions to allow certain things to happen. The carriers use those electronic documents to make the physical carry. When the goods now come into the United States, there's an electronic transmission to U.S. Customs. And that whole matter of transaction, which if you just went back 10 years ago, there was a tremendous amount of paper involved in that movement. And here we are today where that's done all electronically. And it not only speeds up the movement of the of the actual transaction, 
but it brings it about in a much less costly amount because there's less handling and there's less paper involved. And that's called PO management technology. So I think that might be a good opening for, for this discussion tonight. No, I think that was great, uh, Tom, and I really appreciate it. Uh, I think you've really just given us a great foundation to all land on right now. Um, and you've actually gotten me thinking, you know, you talked about goods and managing the supply chain. Um, so I kind of want to pivot a little bit and I'm going to do this uh, intermittently here. Um, and I'm going to bring on Everton. Everton, mm-hmm. um, you know, given what Tom just shared, what continued need is there for a TMS transportation management system to enhance planning and execution of transportation? And I was hoping you could maybe speak to that a little bit because as we all know, you know, ordering items is great, but if you can't deliver it on time or effectively, then you're, I mean, that's, you you have to be able to deliver to your customers. So I was hoping you could speak to that a little bit. Sure thing. So one of the great things about the TMS systems is that it gives you one, it gives you visibility in terms of where something's shipping from or where it's shipping to. But in addition to that, when you put on, bring on a, a TMS system, you also have to put in there transit times as well, right? So going from New York to California, it could be up to five, six, seven days of transit time, depending on the mode that you're using. So it gives you, you know, something to plan off of. In addition to that, the TMS system also will provide you with data such as the cost going from point A to point B. It also gives you details around the performance of the carrier in terms of their on-time pickup and on-time delivery. One of the things I've always used TMS systems for is to have quarterly business reviews with carriers in order to discuss their overall performance. So again, um, it gives me cost, it gives me performance, and also gives me the opportunity to sell with carriers on a quarterly basis or monthly basis if needed to talk about their overall performance, but also talk about my overall performance as a shipper as well. In a lot of cases, we may find that the issue is not the carrier themselves, but actually you know, issues are the shippers that we need to work on in order for items to be picked up and delivered on time within the network. Wow, good good stuff there. And I really do appreciate your input there. Um, and I think it actually kind of leads into it, it, it a little bit. Um, Mark, I, Mark, if you could unmute yourself, I'd like to bring you on. Um, Mark, in the past, you've mentioned the late problem. And I was hoping you could help kind of set the set the tone for everybody here tonight. What is the late problem and why do you think the late problem is so pervasive? Sure. Um, and um, th- thank you for having me, Joe Bernita, um, ASCM. Appreciate it. Um, if I could just uh, speak to a, a few of the comments that have been made already. And, and what's interesting is we, we work primarily and have been working with mostly manufacturers and helping manufacturers in their four walls for about the past 50 years. And when I say we, I mean my, my family, uh, my, my dad in particular, my, and my extended family who uh, helped him throughout the years. Um, uh, way back in the 70s, a, a fellow named George Plossel who was involved in you know, the creation of, of then the MRP systems, right? said that all benefits, and he was, at the time he was referring to manufacturing companies, but I think it's true of any company that's involved in supply chain today, is all benefits are directly proportional to the speed 
of flow of both material and information, right? And Everton and Tom both, I think they, they both saying that same thing in the sense that the, the faster we can get information moving, right, the better visibility we will have, such a key word, visibility, the better visibility we'll have to make the right decisions, whether we're talking about across the world, like in Tom's example, or in the four walls of a manufacturing uh, company. And, um, and, and that's really um, where we get into the late problem. That's, and that's what, what our, my family, frankly, has been doing for quite a long time. And, and the company Lily Works now is we help manufacturers in particular solve this late problem. And the late, if, if you're a manufacturer, you probably know what the late problem is. And that's simply the continuous struggle to getting your products out. Um, in particular, custom products, uh, make to order, um, even engineer to order, high mix type environments where every, a lot of things are different. You know, it's, it's one thing to manufacture um, repetitively, um, the kind of the same widgets, but there's not a lot of that in North America anymore, even across the world, really. Um, and so the, what's, what we find is that most manufacturers are struggling with getting their orders out on time, having, having visibility of what their real capacity is, when they're going to be able to get orders, whether it's the front end, but trying to quote something and give them an accurate lead time or just something that's in process and the customer is calling them saying, when am I gonna be able to get that? And, and they have a really hard time getting a solid answer they can, they can really take to the bank. Joe, yeah. if I could add a comment about that, if I may. Of course. One of the uh, great um, engineers of our industry and supply chain's name was Fred Smith. And he was the gentleman who founded Federal Express, which obviously everybody knows because we say we're going to ship something. We say, hey, we need to FedEx it, right? So that's the dominant profile they played in international transportation. But he once at a presentation that I was uh, had the opportunity to attend, he made the point that he doesn't look at his, as FedEx as a transportation company, but more of a technology and information company. And somebody in the audience said to him, can you explain that? And he says, yeah, he says, because it's just as important for them to be able to know what the status of that shipment is as the shipment itself. Mm -hmm. The information flow of the status of that transportation was just as important as any aspect of what they do. And I think that's very relevant to this conversation that we're having tonight. Absolutely. And I was actually going to come to you next uh, with, the, with this next question on that topic, because, you know, with the technology and the, the rate that it's been growing, you know, your companies that used to serve one region or one location have now had to adopt and grow almost exponentially to the point where now they have to serve on an international or global scale. So, Tom, I wanted to ask you, I was going to pose the question to you, what are the major challenges in technology with companies that have an international footprint on a global scale? Because I think, you know, as as we've seen, the, the current uh, environment that we're in, that's going to be a strategic challenge to overcome mm -hmm. and if you can do it correctly or incorrectly and if you do it incorrectly it could be very costly for you 
I think I think you have to take into uh, the effect of the whole concept of the internet and how the internet works because the internet levels the playing field for all companies, uh, whether you're a small company, mid-size, or a global size company. You have the ability to transfer information uh, in the same speed, the same format as any any other player in in the circumstance, which is a great thing. And anybody can uh, access the internet, which is another great thing. Okay. The biggest challenge relative to that is really cybersecurity issues today. Um, we've had circumstances in the international arena where there have been um, breaches and cyber issues which have impacted global supply chains dramatically. One that comes in specifically is a year and a half ago, Maersk Line, which is the second largest steamship in the, in the world, had its uh, data breach in which over 350,000 transaction files were breached. So all of a sudden in the dark web, posed about 12 hours after the breach, were copies of commercial invoices, bills of lading, packing lists that anybody could get a, a hold of, which meant that competitors, okay, um, and uh, people who obviously had clandestine um, purposes could get access that information and use that information. And it was all due to a fault in their security systems uh, protecting from that kind of occurrence. So this is an exposure for smaller companies or large companies like Maersk which is protecting the data that's being transferred in that, that global basis. And appreciate the fact that a lot of these bad uh, players that, that do a lot of this breaching are actually based in some of the foreign co countries and are extensions of some of the government agents uh, that are involved. And this is a real serious issue and one which means that anybody involved in transferring information, um, both domestically and certainly internationally, has to make sure that there are firewalls and protections in place to protect against those cybersecurity risks. And that's really interesting because the next question, you 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 almost set the playing field perfectly because with with all of that risk right with the expansion and the adoption of international business and dealing with companies across the world and dealing with customers shipping from all different regions and whatnot um everton i wanted to bring you on and i wanted to kind of play the devil's advocate in a sense and ask you do you think there's too great a reliance on, on technology and less focus on building relationships with transportation providers? Because as we've just said, you know, with the increased complexity, with the increased global scale, you increase your risk and potential of threats or hackers or what have you. So I wanted to pose that question to you to see if I can get maybe get your input. Great question. Uh, one of the things there is that I've noticed over the past, you know, a few years, maybe the last 10 years or so, is that we've moved more and more towards technology, which is great, right? But that's not a substitute for developing and building relationship with partner carriers or companies for that matter. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, building these relationships, one of the great things there is that you can take a look at uh, strategic goals. In some cases, we take a look at just purely technology or working with a service provider. It simply is a transactional relationship. What I try to go after is more of strategic relationships where, you know, a particular company may look at certain growth potential in certain regions and then we want to partner, partner with a particular carrier in that region. And I think from that point of view, we can help to build each other 
on the long term versus just being simply transactional. Going back to the heart of your question, though, and that is in terms of you know security overall, the more relationship I think we can build with our partners, the better and the tighter we can build that uh, the, the technology and also build um, the overall relationship. So I think that's going to be a key part going forward and not just rely entirely simply on the technology piece, but simply to build a relationship piece as well. I think when we deal with companies like Marks and with Thomas's companies, you do want to integrate yourself with them as much as possible and to be able to have those strategic meetings. I think that's going to build uh, build the both of us uh, for the long term. Yeah, I can see. I could definitely see how that's going to be a key contributor, a key factor um, as we progress and as we look to find and come up with different solutions. Um, and it's got me, you know, thinking here. And I actually want to go back to uh, to Mark on this one. Mark, you know, we were talking about the late problem, and given what uh, Tom and Everton has been sharing with us. Do you think that there are, are are there any types of manufacturers that experience the late problem, as we were talking about earlier, more so than others? Are there those manufacturers that would be more prone to that? Again, in the lens that uh, Mark and Ever, uh, sorry, Tom and Everton have shared, would you say that there is more? Uh, there are manufacturers that are more prone to the late problem. Sure, and I touched on it a little bit my, um, on my last time in that if the more complex you are, um, in other words, if you're if you're making a standard product over and over every day, you know, kind of widgets type of thing, um, oftentimes it's easy just to manage on spreadsheets and we often see that, right? But where it's more complex, things are different, it's a high mix environment. And this also comes into Tom and Everton's area where where now you're, you're, whether it's transportation or sourcing materials, the more complex you are, typically the more material requirements you're going to have, um, the, the higher mix of those and, and the, the hot, with a high variability of, of not only lead times, but reliability of suppliers, right? So you're bringing in, and, and Tom said it earlier, uncertainty, this all there's just a, and, and with the pandemic, the uncertainty just went through the roof in terms of, yeah, they're, they're telling me a six week lead time, but do I really believe that, right? So how do you manage that when you don't know, right? You, 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 have, six, you have six weeks in your database or on your purchase order, you've got a due date six weeks out, but how, how do you really know you're gonna be able to get that? Uh, so you, you have to be able to manage that uncertainty. And, and that's, that's where technology can help, whether it's um, managing uncertainty from, from when am I going to be able to get my materials in or mm-hmm. in, the, in the four walls of a manufacturing environment, managing all the uncertainty and variability that goes on in, in a production environment as well. Yeah. And Joe, if I, can add, if I can add one other thing there, just to kind of add to what Mark just said, okay. that is, um, you know, the longer you lead time, yeah, and the more modes of transportation you're touching, then it's just more risk associated with that. So if I'm shipping from Shanghai to, let's say, Long Island, for example, not notes goes from the manufacturer, it goes to a port, then has to wait for the sailing time. Then once it sails, then is it going to go to a location where it has to be maybe uh, you know cross docked or transshipped? And then if that's the case, then when does it actually arrive at my destination port? 
So the more touches to it, the more risks there are, and the more important it is for us, for us to have visibility on that shipment, that way we can make changes in almost real time. So if right now your plan lead time is making it up is 45 days from origin to destination, you know, if what actually happens is closer to 50 or 60 days, you need to change that lead time as quickly as possible and start pulling your product as quickly as possible to make your production schedule planned. So uh, it's really important for us to have that information up front as quickly as possible. That way we can make the adjustments on the fly as needed. I'd like to add into that conversation, which is that one of the uh, big changes relative to supply chain uh, came out of the pandemic is the statement that you could sit back and say that lean uh, manufacturing and lean inventory management went out the window the last three years because companies couldn't survive using the same strategies and tactics that they had used prior years in trying to keep the minimum amount of inventory, but keep you fully supplied. Um, by the time we got into spring of 2020, when COVID started, people were starting to run out of things because the world had stopped for several months. So the goal of most companies was to create enough inventory to make sure that, that we weren't having that exposure again. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, things are starting to slow down now is that there's so much inventory because every company had a knee-jerk reaction for the last three years. And that's why warehouses are at 98% as compared to uh, January of 2020 when they were only maybe about 77% full. Um, all because of this concept. So um, then when you talk about technology, is technology can you be utilized to create algorithms which help you anticipate what your demand requirements are and create better strategies for uh, controlling the amount of safety stock that a company requires. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Not not only, if I may, Joe, not only safety stock, but what, um, so there's, a, um, you're probably familiar with it, but there's a, a methodology that essentially, and we, so there's a number of manufacturers who struggle with the traditional method of MRP, right? Where, you know, you're running a bill of material process and, and looking out, trying to time things. They typically experience having, having too little or almost as bad too much uh, of any particular stocked item, right? Um, there's a, there's been a new approach introduced probably around 2011 called demand-driven MRP, which is a lot like what Tom is, is saying. And, and, and it goes beyond a safety stock approach where it actually creates, you, you create a, an, a replenishment buffer essentially for, every, for a family of SKUs or even down to the specific SKU level. And, part, and the parameters that you're putting into this planning buffer, if you will, is, is not only the, uh, the usage, which, which can change over time certainly, but also the the variability and the reliability of a supplier that it's coming from a manufacturer or what have you. So, so what what happens is um, part of the uh, part of sizing this planning buffer is the usage. So as the usage goes up or down, that planning buffer adjusts as well. So it's a little it goes beyond the safety stock in the sense that it's it's looking at what how much you have right now but it's also looking at how much is coming in, right? So, so the folks who, who we've seen use it successfully, there's a couple of things, right? One is um, where maybe you're, and, and I realize if you're ordering from China in particular, you know, you're gonna get a, a, big, a big order as big as you can to try to bring that in for six months. Well, 
of course, from a variability and a buffering standpoint, it's more advantageous to get you know smaller lot quantities more frequently if if you can, right? If it's if it's economically feasible, but that's that helps you be more dynamic and adjust more quickly, right? So so this this the goal of this method is actually to have the the right amount of inventory of any skew at in uh, at any time. Um, but at the same time, you know, not having stockouts, but at the same time, not having too much of, mm -hmm. of any inventory item. And that's, that's really the goal. And uh, it's an interesting uh, to compare it against the uh, traditional MRP model, because it is, um, it is quite different. Yeah. And, you know, I think you've touched on it is having the right amount of inventory at the mm -hmm. right time at the right location but mm -hmm. now you throw in the the kind of complexity that we've been seeing over the past couple of years i mean it's been all kind of been initiated by covid um and i i hate to say the c word there but it really did change things for everybody because mm -hmm lead times changed uh, availability changed who you can go to you know your tier one your tier two your tier three suppliers you started to had started to have to redesign you know companies spent months and years to come up with that perfect formula you know if this then that um and then covid comes along turns everything on its head and just recently in Everton I'm going to come to you on this one um, just recently we've seen with all the recent uh, rail car derailments of hazardous materials with regulators um, uh, who, who lean too far in one direction or the other um, how much of that will affect service in terms of transit time and future requirements to ship rail because you know, you have all these unanticipated disruptions that you were planning on shipping X amount of goods to be at a customer at such and such date. But then you have all these unplanned disruptions. How are companies um, kind of coping with that and, and how are they handling that kind of a situation? Well, great question. One of the things here is that over the past maybe five to 10 years, the federal government has not been as stringent in terms of regulation with the railroads, right? And think with the recent derailments, they've kind of flipped the switch and now they're going in the other direction and being a lot more stringent. How this is gonna affect a lot of companies is the following. Where the railroads before the past few years have not been that stringent, now they're looking at everything, especially paperwork, BOLs, um, and in terms of are the, are the products being labeled correctly, the UN numbers correctly, and so companies are not prepared for this kind of pushback from the railroad. So now they have to go back and make sure all this paperwork is correct. The railroads are not going to move anything without this being absolutely positively 100%. Uh, companies that would normally dray those shipments from a shipper to a rail ramp are not going to move it if that paperwork is not correct. So that's just going to create delays within the network uh, for anything going by rail. Uh, in addition to that, the railroad would have to railroads also have to invest a lot more in terms of track, um, uh, in terms of the tracks that they they have, and also in terms of uh, some of the safety uh, equipment they need to put in place. And that's going to take some time as well, uh, because they do not want to risk having another derailment. 
Uh, going back to the previous course, and I'm just jumping up for one second, and that is what this is also going to do to is, um, you know, if you're one of your biggest suppliers from China, um, you know, one of the things that's going to happen is folks are going to look at more more at, you know, diversifying their supplier base, right? So they may not want to look at a supplier that's necessarily far away, but they want to look at a supplier that is closer to the customer base. And if you're talking about even the continental US, if you normally ship from a supplier in California, we're based in New York, they may want to take, take a, start taking a look at suppliers closer, again, to their home base where it now becomes trucked versus going by rail because of all the risk associated there. So there's going to be a lot of things that uh, folks will have to take, a, take into consideration over the next few months and years uh, just to sustain their business and not being impacted by either the railroad or by having a long transit time within their network. If I could just jump in on your rail question, Joe, to um, add on to what Everton uh, said, said is that the preliminary findings of the cause of the problem was the size of the train and the speed that it was traveling. Um, and the fact that its infrastructure, meaning the rail tracks that it was sitting on, wasn't designed to handle that size of a volume of number of cars at the speed it was going. Okay, and appreciate the fact that the railroads in trying to create efficiency are trying to move as many cars as they possibly can using the same engine power. Um, so um, uh, right now, there isn't anything being done about it. If you went to that community now, you're going to see the same trains passing by that community that were passing by there the day before that accident occurred. Okay, the issue is going to be whether or not the federal government's going to step in and regulate the number of cars that uh, that can be taken on a train. I do a lot of traveling across the country, and when you come into the desert areas, such as in Arizona, uh, the east side of California, into New Mexico, you're traveling on a highway where the railroad track is adjacent to you, and you could go for five miles and still not, uh, you know, be at the end of a train that's traveling alongside you. You know, there are 175, 200 cars in some of those those trains, right? And the point is that the infrastructure wasn't designed to carry that many and to handle the turns and the and the bumps and the rumps that are in that in that way. So unless the federal government comes in to regulate it, it's not gonna there's nothing's gonna happen as a result of that that accident, unfortunately. That's the way the preliminary reports will come. Also, the other thing too is that when you take a look at uh, rail transportation. They have shortened their transit time significantly over the last 15, 20 years, right? So whereas going from, let's say, New York to California, or let's say 20 years ago, it was taking eight days, they've been able to cut two, three days off of that transit time. Right. So these trains are moving much faster than they were, were ever before. So that's a part of the problem as well. Again, they're trying to um, expedite these uh, rail shipments, but again, if their tracks are not uh, properly serviced, just creates a greater likelihood for an accident. You know, this conversation has really um, been enlightening, and I kind of want to, you know, pivot a little bit here and go back to Mark. You know, we we're talking about all of these disruptions. We we're talking about all of these issues that one could see in their companies, and we, and again, we talked about the late, uh, the late problem that manufacturers and companies are seeing. And I was wondering, you know, with this new approach that you have for solving the late problem, as you as you call it, the dynamic production method, how does a company go about implementing it? 
Because again, we're seeing all of this disruption. We're seeing all of these issues. And I'm kind of hoping that you could just tie us back into this conversation about, you know, with technology and the role that it plays in supply chain, with all of the complexity that we're currently seeing and all of the uncertainty, which is now adding another element of complexity. I was hoping you might be able to touch on that, Mark. Sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. So um, if you look at the traditional, the, the, the ERP systems today, they typically all have scheduling embedded in them, right? And when you, when you talk about managing production, for example, and, and all the variability that is involved in managing a production environment in a manufacturing company, um, when you look at, the tra- at, at ERP, they, they have the, the traditional method of scheduling basically embedded in them. So even today, if you, you have a demo with a, a current ERP system and you ask for the, the scheduling demo, what you're going to see is the, the traditional capacity loading method that was developed back in the 70s and 80s. And it is in the ERP system and it really hasn't changed much since then. So the, and, and which would be fine if, if companies were able to utilize it to do the things they wanna do with scheduling, right? Improve on-time delivery, reduce lead times and so on and so forth. So, you know, our, our story is, you know, my dad founded uh, Proficy, which was a job shop custom manufacturing ERP system in the 80s had one of the first finite schedulers embedded in it Um, and then in the 90s he founded visual manufacturing which was also custom um, manufacturing ERP Um, either of those products have been you know used still being used today by thousands of manufacturers the issue and what we found was that in spite of this scheduling functionality and it is very it's very good in both Proficy and Visual, and it's very good in many ERP systems. Um, it's simply that manufacturers are not able to utilize it to to do what they need to do. They struggle with the idea of having to run a program um, once you once you've created this plan out of the program and brought it out into the production environment. What happens? Well. Typically, things are changing very quickly. So as soon as as soon as those priorities hit the production floor, something changes. A customer is calling and changing a due date. Uh, your best setup person doesn't show up. Uh, a material comes in late, right? So so you feel like you need to go rerun the program. So what we find is that most manufacturers are managing production using spreadsheets or manual methods. So. The way we're using technology today is is by developing a new production management tool that can be. So the the other thing is, if if you come up and we we did we came up with this new approach, but folks don't want to have to replace their entire ERP to take advantage of it. So we have a production management tool that bolts into your existing ERP system, so you don't have to wait to you know replace your whole ERP to, to get to the production management part. You can just take this piece and put it in and start right away. Now, the, the big difference is 
in the planning and execution. So in the traditional model, you're, you're trying to create a plan and then you're attempting to execute it out in production. We've reversed that model 180 degrees. So instead, what we're doing is we're taking the information from the source ERP and in real time, we're transforming that into priorities, publishing those out into production without having to run a scheduling program. And what's interesting, the other word I've heard used here in the conversation is risk. And that's exactly what we use as a priority level. So instead of due date, where in a high mix environment, you're, you're going to have uh, jobs, for example, that are due, say, two months from now that are more in danger of being late if you don't get started on it today than work orders or jobs that are due only uh, a week or two from now, right? So if you're prioritizing based on due date, you're always paying attention to those to the work that's due earlier at the expense of the work that's due much later, but could have many more operations, maybe even need to go to two or three outside contractors and back before mm -hmm. it's due date. So we look instead at a risk level and we call our priority mechanism just that, we call it a threat level. So these priorities are real time. We're focusing on the execution first to make sure everyone's executing in the best way. And then instead of running a scheduling program, we actually utilize a simulator that simulates that execution method out into the future. So then they can see what their bottlenecks are gonna be, where they're gonna have whether it's people issues, uh, material issues, capacity issues, or whatnot um, down the road in the future. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think you've given uh, everybody here a lot of information there and a lot of things to think about. And I, it really speaks to the core element that seems to be at the center of uh, this conversation. And I really do appreciate that. Um, and I'm kind of curious, you know, we've talking, we've, we spoke a lot about what's actually happening in the world, but we haven't given much real-time examples. So, Tom, I, I want to turn to you and, and maybe just put this question on you um, and ask you, can, can you give us an example of a company leveraging technology in the supply chain today? You know, because, again, we've been talking about it what the issues are, but are there companies that are currently leveraging technology in the supply chain and how is it going for them? How, are they seeing the results? Is it being, is it cost effective for them? And I was hoping maybe you could share a little bit about that as well. Sure. So I'll give an example of a company that's uh, based right here on Long Island. That's in the uh, defense contracting business. Um, they uh, create supplemental parts that are used in the defense industry that they sell both domestically and internationally. Domestically, they're selling it to various US government agencies and there's very little control on that aspect because it's gonna stay within the United States. But the goods that they sell to foreign countries and to commercial entities located outside the United States, there are very strict export controls on those products. As an example, uh, you there are certain countries you can't, you can't sell certain things to. Uh, there are certain individuals or companies you can't sell certain things. And then there's a whole process of determining whether or not 
you can sell and whether or not you have to get an export license in order to sell that product into that country. So there's all these kind of export controls for that company. So this particular company called us in knowing that we deal with both risk and spend and asked us what kind of efficiencies do they do we think we could create uh, in their export supply chain. So they had three people dedicated to the task of managing these export controls on all their export activity. So they weren't using any export technology. So we showed them uh, three available programs that could be a bolt-on to their ERP system, okay? And what those technologies does is that when a salesperson creates a potential sales order and puts that into their ERP, it sends that information into the bolt-on technology and it tells them whether they can or they can't ship it to that country. So they gives them a yay or a nay. It tells them what kind of controls are in place. Is this controlled by the Department of Commerce? Is this controlled by the Department of State? Is this controlled by the Department of Treasury? Um, and then it tells them uh, whether a license is going to be required or not based upon the information provided by that salesperson or customer service. And then if a license is required, an application will pop out of the technology. Person can fill out the application and that can be sent right into the government agency over that. Uh, that eliminated that process, two of the people in that department. So it was not necessarily letting two people go, but it was allowing two people to be moved into a different area where their time was spent in business development rather than on export control. And the technology took over that, that, that position. And appreciate, you know, what an average person would make in a company. This bolt-on technology was in the range of about forty to $45,000 uh, of an annual cost. So it was dramatically improving the efficiency and you avoided the exposure of human error in the evaluation process and allowed it for technology to take over. So that would be a good example of how technology can be used in the global supply chain uh, to create efficiency. Beautiful. I, I hey, love Joe. it. Uh, and hey, Joe, can, I, can I add something there to you? Absolutely. Um, I was actually coming to you next. Okay, thank you. So we take a look at uh, different supply chain platforms like four kites, for example, right? as a tracking and uh, visibility tool. I mean, it gives you almost real-time visibility of shipments. Um, and the great thing about that, it goes across different modes of transportation. So if you're shipping pharmaceutical products from you know, you know, Asia, for example, it's going by ocean, then it's gonna arrive into the US and go by truck and then by rail, whatever, to the final destination. You know, Forkite can tell you, you know, uh, for example, you know, the temperature control of this particular item that's FDA controlled to make sure it did not fall outside of that threshold. Um, and again, this is going along different modes of transportation from origin to destination. So this is where something where technology plays an incredible role, an important role uh, with pharmaceutical products as well as medical equipment products to make sure from a safety point of view, it does not um, fall out of the threshold, like I said, and still can arrive to the destination and be processed and used. In, in medicine and uh, not uh, create a problem for us. So Forecast has been an incredible software and platform that I've used before in the past. And uh, I think that it's uh, one of the biggest uh, transformation in supply chain over the last uh, 15 years or so. Absolutely, and uh, you hit the nail on the head right there because again, um, the way that the, this conversation has been evolving, similar to how, you know, technology and supply chain has been evolving. We're growing at a global scale. We need that visibility. Um, but that being said, technology 
is not going to be a silver bullet for every company if they're not utilizing it in the proper form, if they're not pulling the correct hmm. key in, key uh, indicators that they need to. And I'm going to hmm. pivot over to Mark, you know, because you engage with clients on, on a daily basis and you provide them with solutions um, and some of and those solutions will vary from, you know, client to client. But I'm curious, you know, again, technology is not a silver bullet if it's used improperly or if it's misrepresented. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to you, a uh, question to you would be, when you and your team engage with a client, what is one of the main reasons that a client might not be successful in implementing an approach or a solution? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, it's it typically comes down to adoption, right? So um, we uh, we we implement in phases, and the phases build on each other, right? So we we don't go to a a phase two until you're successful and live with with phase one. Um, the the phase one is that you're you're publishing these risk level priorities out in production, and that whether it's for the entire shop or specific to any department, be it, you know, forming, welding, brake, laser, you know, uh, the, any of the CNC machines, lathes, turning, um, uh, milling, what have you, that anybody can see what work they need to be focusing on right now, which job, which task, which, which work order they need to be working on. Um, so when that's happening, that's making sure that the entire, if everybody's working on the jobs that are most at risk of being late in their department, then as a whole, the entire company will be maximizing their capability to get all their orders out on time as much as their capacity will allow. So what we often see is um, we'll get a champion um, and especially if the if the champion happens to not be in the production environment maybe it's a an engineer who's close works with production but isn't actually you know running it or has the authority they'll they'll be very excited about this approach and wanting to utilize it they may even sell the c levels the ownership of the company right um and we've we've had this before we actually have a case study uh, that's written up in um modern machine shop uh, about this uh, exact thing is the, the they were bought they bought in at the C level and they published the uh, priorities out in production, but after several weeks nothing changed. Right, their on time delivery was the same, their flow was the same. They 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 weren't getting things out any faster. So we took a harder look at it, and the reality was um, the the and especially the key production folks, the key leads on the floor hadn't bought in to the to the method because they hadn't been they hadn't been trained so um so we brought them in and not only um trained them but but got them believing in it um involved in its implementation and once that turnaround happened then the the method implemented itself and the, the material flow just accelerated um uh exponentially it was interesting because uh, I did a show, I did a, a Top Shops conference with one of the owners, 
And uh, this was a, a small shop. It was about 40 people. And they brought seven of their people with them to the show. And one of the leads, one of the production leads was actually there. He stood up in the art during the, the presentation and said, you know, there's, there's no way that seven of us could be here attending this conference um, without this tool that, that is showing people while we're away is showing what they need to be working on next, right? Right, yeah. Wow. Um, I mean, just the amount of information that we've been able to share in this one episode has really got my mind spinning a little bit. It's 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 amazing at how complex these uh, these companies can be and how uh, we're progressing and, and the information that we have at hand and to the credit of technology and then you know using that information to then strategically align yourself. I think is one of the key factors, the key benefits of um of 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 implementing this technology and and um just want to thank everybody that's participating in this conversation because i i truly think it's it's without you if you didn't know the complexity that we have right now in technology the leverage that we have the the benefits that it that it produces you wouldn't you wouldn't know the vast uh, impact that it has on all of these companies. And again, we're, we're, we're in a global market right now. So companies rely on one another. So your technology feeds into another company's technology. Um, really interesting stuff. Really um, great conversation. Um, I, I think we've kind of landed there, you know? Um, so I think this is a great spot to kind of open things up for Q&A. We have a lot of people on the call, and I'm sure, you know, people have, we've given them so much information. I'm sure that there are some questions that individuals have for either any of our um, panel here. So uh, I'm going to bring Bernita back on the call. Bernita, are you are you still there? Yes, I'm here. Uh, thank you, uh, um, thank you, everyone, for for uh, being on this call and uh, sticking around for a few questions too. Um, so I'm going to open up the chat panel right now, and if you could just go ahead and post it, or if you'd prefer to raise your hand and speak for yourself, um, we'll go ahead and take that. Start taking questions. Uh, we'll give you a few minutes to think about how you're going to approach it, um, and uh, we'll take the first question. Everybody can unmute yourselves, please, and go ahead. And if you want to come back on line, it's fine. You can come back on camera. I'm okay with that, too. This is an open forum. Well, good afternoon and good evening to everyone. Like you said, in Benita, we have an international audience, so. Yes, we do. Uh, Saint Cla- this is St. Clair Gerald um, yes, um, on the board of directors. Saint Clair Gerald. Uh, I'm on the uh, board of the... Uh, ASCM, New York City, uh, Long Island Forum. And great presentation, um, gentlemen. Uh, Joe, you did an outstanding job as usual. So I have a question for uh, the panel. 
Uh, one of the hot things that everyone is talking about right now is, uh, especially in the light of uh, the pandemic and all of the uh, you know, black swan events that have been taking place, is uh, reshoring and nearshoring. Mm -hmm. um, and reshoring and nearshoring, they're not quite the same, even though people not in our industry uh, take them as the same. So my question to the panel is this, and gentlemen, you could all jump in, is uh, in regard to uh, reshoring, uh, how do you actually see that progressing right now? There's a lot of buzz where politicians will say, oh, you know, we just, we're just going to bring jobs back to America and just pick up factories and move them over here. Well, just from experience, when we offshored or outsourced product to uh, China or whatever else, we exported a lot of that technology and that expertise and the know-how also. So my question is, how do you see reshoring progressing over the next few years? Is it more talk than substance, or do you really see it taking hold and uh, you know bringing uh, that manufacturing back to the U.S.? Well, I'll take a shot, shot at it, um, and ever, ever, I'll take a shot at it, and then I'll hand it to you. But um, about twenty percent of our team's effort is now on reshoring or nearshoring, and the difference between reshoring and nearshoring is reshoring is bringing it back specifically to the United States. Nearshoring is moving it closer to the United States, which might be Mexico or Canada, as an example, or the Caribbean. Um, so it's clearly happening. Um, the government watches it, um, and uh, they'll tell you that statistically about 3% in the last two years has come back uh, in either one of those capacities, either uh, to the United States or to a near shore location. I'm not sure exactly where they get that statistics from, but you know, that's the numbers that the Department of Commerce is using. Um, and it's, it's a big movement of happening because it's a risk management strategy the vulnerability and the dependence on China as a source uh, creates a certain amount of risk. And that's become clear through the pandemic and over the political and economic situation between the United States and China. The, the big issue, and I'll give you a specific case study, is, is we moved a company a year and a half ago um, that moved itself to China, um, moved 300 jobs out of um, Oklahoma City to China, um, and a year and a half ago, they decided to bring that back, okay? And so we created a whole facility for them in Oklahoma City to be able to do that. And we were successful with it because we created it into a foreign trade zone. So that gave them significant manufacturing advantage, creating that facility into a foreign trade zone. So our problem wasn't creating the foreign trade zone and our problem wasn't creating a financial model that supported that decision. Our problem was getting labor to work inside that that uh, location, okay? And that's something that's repeated itself in lots of different places, particularly here on Long Island. A lot of companies that we, that we work with here will say, yeah, that's fine, we can bring back so much of it. And yes, you can create a financial model to support that, but where are we gonna get the help? We can't get people to come in, you know, and we've, we've more than doubled the hourly wage for uh, warehouse and blue collar uh, workers in the, in the location. So that's, that's something that's gonna impede that activity uh, because we're now bringing that into the financial model, which is the likelihood of being able to get people to support that, that function because of that problem. So I wanted to add that into it. 
Yeah, that's so, uh, a great answer, Tom. And yeah. I think that's one of the biggest challenges with reshoring and nearshoring because so, all the people who actually had those jobs that were outsourced, they've gone mm -hmm. off to do other things. So now if you yeah. actually bring that function back, like you said, where, where are we going to find that labor and that expertise, you know, to run, you know, those machines or whatever else or perform that function? So, yeah, great answer. Thank you. Yeah, and St. Clair, yeah. I just I just so, want to give Everton a chance to respond as well because I know that he wanted to – he had something that he wanted to contribute to that. Yeah, thank you, Joe. I, I completely agree with Tom on that. You're going to see more and more of this reshoring and nearshoring going forward, um, if not in, if not reshoring back to the U.S., but definitely back into Central America or the Caribbean, to his point. I think one of the other things that's going to be a big driver for all of this, too, is that with increasing tariffs as well. Because remember, for a period of time, um, uh, you know, tariffs definitely increased uh, for some of the products coming back to the U.S. And uh, that's, again, that's a tax coming in, right? So if we can avoid that going forward by bringing those jobs or bringing the manufacturing back to the U.S., that's definitely going to take the air out of that um, out of that expense as well. So I definitely see more and more uh, items coming back to the U.S. And again, it's more for risk mitigation for a lot of these companies where if there's an issue in China, we can no longer afford to spend $20,000, $30,000 on a container that prior to the pandemic was only $2,000, right? That's a huge uptick. And all that cost has been passed all along to the consumer, and that definitely impacts the overall um, spending power of Americans. If more and more of their their money is not going towards um, purchasing items versus actually saving and going to other things. So yeah, it's going to be more and more of this nearshoring and uh, reshoring going forward. All right, thank you, Everton. Great answer. Beautiful. Thank and now so uh, I see Barbara is raising her hand, so I want to go over to Barbara and get her input. Thanks. Hi everybody. So Tom, in, in response to what you're, you were saying though, as far as finding the help and what Everton was saying also that that seems to be a problem. But from what I've been reading, more and more warehousing is going towards technology to replace those positions that were initially taken by the blue collar workers. So people are complaining that, oh, all our work is offshore, but when they bring it back to inshore, then it's being replaced by technology. What is your response to that? Well, I, I think that's one of, that's, that is a solution to that challenge uh, if in fact technology can be replacing. Um, mm -hmm. If you look at Tesla as an example, one of their successes is, uh, is the fact that they use technology to, to such an extreme, they've reduced the impact and the footprint of labor in their business model which enabled them very easily to move a significant amount of their manufacturing to Texas overnight because it wasn't having to move people. It was moving equipment and machinery uh, from one location to the other. So it clearly does it. The problem is, is that one, the cost of that technology would be an impediment for smaller and mid-sized manufacturers because it takes a tremendous amount of capital to be able to do that. Okay, And there are certain technologies which just don't work. I happen to be working right now with a company in Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania, that's a very huge, huge uh, fashion company. And they, they have so many different products that they keep in their inventory structure. And the products have so many different forms and shapes and sizes and so forth like that, that there isn't a particular type of robot arm that can deal with all the intricacies of those different things. So they rely more heavily on humans that have 
significant more flexibility, uh, you know, and the ability to adjust their hands to be able to make a pick where a piece of machinery hasn't been able to do that at this point in time. So to where technology can be used is clearly an answer when the circumstances are correct, but not in all case, not in all cases. Almost, yeah, almost like what Med is trying to do, right? Where you can, uh, on a 3D basis, where you might be able to be home and work out of home, but still do that mm -hmm. manufacturing job if you're able to control a machine, almost like your old remote control, right? You can almost control something from a distance. So, but it's gonna be more, instead of taking away, you know, we're gonna be losing blue collar jobs because more and more people can have to be technically knowledgeable on the technology side. And that's gonna become a lot of what we know today as blue collar jobs. That's my opinion, that's what's gonna become the next blue collar job, only it's not gonna be quite blue collar. Yeah. yeah, the other thing there, and Mark uh, kind of spoke to it as well, and that is a lot of these warehouses are almost fully automated. It's it's cost prohibitive to do that. I mean, it requires a lot of capital, and not too many warehouses have the kind of funding and the resource to do that. Right. So it's going to take a while before it gets to that level where more and more warehouses, so many warehouses are being automated, where it's going to have a significant impact on blue collar workers. So for the for so for the foreseeable future. I still think we're going to have quite a bit of folks working in warehouses, operating forklifts, um, um, and uh, continuing that blue-collar job. So I, think, I, I actually think um, a, a great segue for this right now, I don't mean to cut anybody off right here, um, Mark Temkin is on the call, and he had added a question into the chat. Mark, did you want to unmute yourself and, and ask the question live, or do you want me to read it? Sure, sure. Um, hey, guys, hopefully you can hear me all right. Um, I was asking about the um, potential of AI in supply chain. I know it's early. I know it's somewhat speculative. But one of the advantages in companies that can take a lot of data and figure out patterns, raise exceptions, and be more nimble involves how well they can process large data. And AI has a potential to create a revolution in that. And I'll give you a really quick example. You know, in demand planning, we did a side-by-side -side comparison of an AI model during the pandemic versus a traditional time series forecasting. And the AI model was much better because it could take new parameters like store traffic, um, what people were doing digitally online and other you know factors that we just didn't have in traditional models and it could find out or figure out that that was really really important and use hourly and daily data to do that whereas it might have taken us a month to digest all of that so just want to get your thoughts well i'll add in that you know we use ai technology all the time. Um, so as example, we, we have what's called drawback programs and drawback programs is designed where a company that imports merchandise where they pay duties and taxes now export that same product overseas. They can have the ability to go back to customs and claim back 99% of the duties that they paid on goods that are now exported. But you have to create a documentary trail in order to claim that that drawback. So you're now taking uh, copies of invoices, bills of lading, um, packing lists and so forth, which at this point in time, usually after the fact, 
uh, may not be uh, totally clear, visibly clear. They may be creased. Um, they may be lacking certain information. So by screening the documents through a sophisticated AI technology, we can recreate all the data necessary to make that drawback submission. Okay, and we use it. We use it every day. Prior to that, we'd have to have a person manually grab a file and, and do visual looking at all the data, making comparisons and so forth. And it could take a person as much as an hour, hour and a half to move one file along. Okay, where AI can do it in the matter of about you know a minute and a half. Okay, so that efficiency is clearly in in the supply chain today, and we use it all the time. But it was very expensive to create that AI. It now is paying itself back over the course of time. But initially, it was a, a very, very high expense compared to other bolt-on technologies that we've added into our systems. Well, and Tom, and, and with that, um, some of the stuff that we're looking into at Trade Technologies, we're a doc prep company that processes documents under export letters of credits. Um, we help companies prepare these documents. And one of the things we do through our technology is we can capture all of that data in our system. But we're looking into AI now where even though it's captured, there's still so much, as you know, with letters of credits, it's still very, you know, there's so many different things out of place. But we're trying to look at some AI that can actually examine the documents so a person doesn't have to do that and try to be a little bit more faster and efficient with that. It's gonna be a while before that actually comes out, but that's what we're looking at with AI as well. So it's very interesting how it is coming more and more to the supply chain in many different facets. Yeah, so somebody soon is going to create, you know, the, the scheduling tool that, that utilizes AI, right? Whether it's in transportation, I believe, distribution or, or in a manufacturing environment. Um, we've got a, um, I, I think I've already kind of described how, how we're a little bit different than a traditional scheduler where we're looking at execution first and then simulating the method of execution out in the future. So we actually call the simulator the predictor um, which you could argue is a form of AI in, in terms of the parameters, but, but AI really takes into not only a lot more parameters around um, the situation, like a manufacturing environment, but also everything else, right? I mean, like what's, what's the price of tea in China at the time that, that you ran this metal on the machine, right? I mean, it, it, can, it can look at correlations between absolutely anything. Some of which are, you know, meaningless, frankly. Um, others are, are very meaningful. And I think one of the big potentials is to, um, to be able to use AI to find correlations that you never would have imagined before, but, um, but discovering something where, where things are very highly correlated. So your predictive, your predictive ab ability is, uh, is much stronger. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Right. So coming back to your uh, nearshoring and close, I just want to mention one thing is that the United States government and the Mexican government over 20 years ago um, created a program to deal with illegal immigration by creating a significant manufacturing capability in Mexico called the Maquiladora program, which was designed to create middle class uh, and blue collar jobs for Mexicans which would hopefully want them to stay in Mexico rather than having to come to the United States for jobs. And it actually has had a very favorable, huge impact. 
And about 60% of the Fortune 1000 companies have a direct or an indirect interest in Makila Dora manufacturing and assembly. And there's a huge advantage in tariff mitigation um, and the cost of transportation and the cost of manufacturing when companies view uh, production in Asia and Europe as compared to uh, similar and like manufacturing or assembly in Mexico that's in that Maquiladora program. So that's a, a significant option for a lot of U.S. companies to look at. Great, great questions. Great conversation. Great feedback. Um, just going to do one more, uh, you know, opening to the to the all of our guests that are listening live right now. Does anybody else have a question that they would like to uh, pose to the panel here? Okay. Well, with that, um, oh, I see, I see St. Clair unmuted himself, and I see, so here's live. So St. Clair, did you have a question? Uh, yeah, just a, a quick question for um, for Mark and Everton or Tom can jump in also. So in uh, manufacturing, I know you are uh, deeply uh, involved in um, that area, Mark. Are you seeing a, a wider adoption of RFID, uh, which is you know radio frequency identification in manufacturing? Um, and if so, you know how 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 much is that growing? Um, yes, some some. So it it depends on the on the manufacturer. I think um, uh, the some of our more complex customers, the ones who have deep bombs and they're they're putting together complex assemblies, for example, or they have sub-assemblies that are going into sub-assemblies. One of the uses of our RFID that's expanded quite a bit is being able to track WIP. Because um, even, even in ERP systems, there's not, I mean, once, once you've issued material out into work and process, it, it kind of gets lost, you know, other than knowing what that last operation was that, it, that worked on it. Um, so being able to, to literally track, uh, we've seen applications where, you know, you have a, on, your, on your PC, you've got a, a map of the manufacturing facility and you can literally, through the RFID tags, you can literally see where, where the WIP is sitting um, at any moment. And that, that can have substantial time savings, especially from a lean perspective. So as to waste, you know, if, without that, companies are wasting a lot of time looking for material. They, they see what they need to do next, but where mm -hmm. is it? Where's that whip that we did last time? So, Right. Yeah, and a big part of it is that it, it definitely requires a lot of investment in the RFID technology. Uh, previous company I worked for, Pitney Bowes, uh, they make these machines that basically process uh, credit cards um, and actually send statements out to customers, right? And the engines in these machines cost about a half a million dollars each. And so to build these engines and the sub-assemblies associated with it, you know, is uh, significant in terms of cost as well. And so to Tom's point, they use uh, RFID to track all the parts and the sub-assembly. And once it's completed, then they know that they have a full engine available to go into these machines. But the investment into it is significant. And uh, unless you have the money to really invest, then it, it, you know, it's going to take some time. And again, you have to have the investment available to do something like that. 
the area of St. Clair that I've seen a lot of this is because of the cost involved is there's a, a concept in supply chain called chain of custody, which is the accountability of a product as it moves through the supply chain. So companies like pharmaceutical companies, medical product companies, um, food companies and so forth have to worry about that chain of custody because of the concerns relative to potential contamination and infestation and so forth. So they are using RFID pretty significantly and they're you know, obviously absorbing that cost and the cost of goods sold. Um, so uh, that's where you see it being used. But general uh, merchandise industries, I think for the most part, have found it uh, too expensive and not getting real value from it. Okay, just one thing I want to add for anyone who might not be really familiar with RFID. If anyone has an easy pass tag on their card, on their car, and you just go through the uh, the toll right now, and it just captures that information. That's basically RFID, radio frequency identification, in, you know, in, in simple terms. Uh, I've been listening in, and it's certainly a great conversation. Uh, one of the things that you know we sort of don't take much into consideration is the human intervention. Uh, you know, we, we keep talking a lot about technology and human intervention is really critical to make everything successful. Uh, Tom, do you just use the word chain of custody, which is to be understood that I don't know if any of you heard about the Dabbawalas in Mumbai, in India. Uh, for 125 years, they have been delivering food to hundreds and thousands of people every day illiterate people for 125 years they've been doing it and they were 99.9% .9 perfect order. They have a system that Harvard has been trying to study for the longest time. Tom, I don't know if you have seen them do the job, you have traveled to India. Yep. And, and it is an amazing study. If ever you want to understand human logistics and how they manage it without technology and don't lose even one lunchbox. And for 125 years, they've been doing it. That tells you that yes, we can always talk about technology but the human element is so critical to make it successful that we cannot undermine that in the push for AI and all the other beautiful stuff that we speak about. Because at the end of the day, it's their commitment to delivery that matters more than the machine itself. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, people who hire people, even in this industry, logistics, supply chain, mm -hmm. they always say that, you know, I talk to a lot of HR managers and supply chain companies. They don't find the right people they can always find the right machine. Mm -hmm. Cannot find the right person. And, and so let's not, you know, it's technology is beautiful to deliver and, and multiple and expensive. Mm -hmm. But in the end, it's always going to be the human person, the manager, mm -hmm. like Everton does his job in his company. Uh, he is more critical to them than the machine itself, you know. Uh, and I think that's something we cannot uh, discount ever in our discussions. Yeah, I, I completely... Yeah, I completely agree with you there. That reminds me of um, a situation I faced at a previous company. Um, I used to work for a uh, paper company based in Canada. And when I first started there, they were working with C.H. Robinson using their Navisphere uh, TMS system, basically as their, as their TMS. And it worked great in terms of getting rates and in terms of you know, trying to shorten lead times. But one of the biggest challenges a lot of the carriers face was a high turnover because of, of the driver shortage. 
you know, a driver would see another company willing to pay him an extra five cents per mile and he'd leave and go to a different company and they'd have to find another driver to replace them. So when I started at the company, one of the things I focused on was how do we reduce the driver turnover, try to de develop more of a strategic relationship with our carriers. And one of the things based on the feedback from the drivers was that, you know, when they drove from Canada into the US, and they make their delivery. Now they have to find someplace to park their tractors. Now with the 34-hour rules, now they have to um, wait 34 hours before they can restart and that became, became an issue for them. So one of the things we did internally was based on some of the customers we were delivering to Chicago Tribune, New York Times, because we made newsprint paper for these newspapers, we contacted them and said, hey, listen, when a driver comes there to make a delivery, can he sit there overnight and you know, sit in his tractor while he's doing his 34-hour reset. If you have a cafeteria, can he go inside and go to the cafeteria? If you have a restroom, can he use it while he's there and just sit in the yard? And that became something where the drivers themselves were willing to continue working for this company and continue doing the routes for us simply because they had these opportunities that they would not have had otherwise. So we can rely on technology all we want, but that's not going to fix the root causes of some of the problems that we're facing. So we're talking about driver shortage, and, we're keep the, and you want to keep the driver working for that company and delivering your loads. These are some of the things you may have to do to accommodate them to maintain those lower rates and maintain their better quality of life by making these human interventions that the technology or CH Robinson cannot intervene and do for us. I know. I mean, I'm trying. I'm starting a training program soon at a company. Uh, they have the best ERP system, but they can't seem to make it work. You know, uh, it's all. And the people in the room are, you know, scratching their heads and trying to figure out. And that's where we will go back to is systems of SNOP. We talk a lot about in the supply chain, you know, SNOP, SNOP, uh, trying to people connect to each other, reduce the silos of understanding, you know, talking to each other in business. And the funny thing is, if you ask somebody to define logistics, the shipper has a different definition of logistics and the receiver has a completely different definition of logistics, you know. <laughs> And somewhere Absolutely. in there is the truth about sending and getting the product on time, you know. So mm -hmm. uh, that was my two cents worth in this beautiful conversation we are having, you know. Joe, you're doing a tremendous job as always, you know. Mm -hmm. You're oh. our star show. Thank you. Thank you. And I think this conversation has been absolutely tremendous. I, th I, I, I personally just, I just want to take a moment just to thank Mark, Tom, and Everton for taking the time out of, their busy schedules to speak to all of us to come together on a panel discussion, which is not an easy thing to coordinate and do. But I think this conversation, the three of you have played into one another so beautifully to, to give us the, the whole picture, because I think that's one of the things that, you know, in business, everybody thinks that they have the solution, but they have a solution to a siloed problem without consideration mm -hmm. of the bigger picture because everything is integrated as we talked about tonight. Everything is connected. It is a global world that we live in. It's global companies and it's global transportation. So therefore we need a global solution. We don't need um, isolated uh, siloed solutions that only solve one problem without taking into consideration other aspects as well. So again, gentlemen, I really do just want to thank you 
for the time that you've spent, for the wisdom that you've imparted, for the for all of the knowledge that you've shared with us tonight. I think this conversation was great. And as I close, just a reminder: this episode will be record is being recorded. Um, you can find you can uh, get it at Supply Chain Briefs wherever you download your podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and more. Um, so be sure that if you were not able to listen to this conversation live. You can certainly download it in the future. So with that, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it.